0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. <coughs> I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Backward Life of Lenten Spring. <clears throat> it's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March 25, 2012, the fifth Sunday in Lent. This week marks the official beginning of spring. Warmer days are overtaking winter darkness. My neighbor's cherry trees have blossomed, and I've noticed more birdsong with my early morning coffee. The Welsh Welsh physician and poet, Henry Vaughan, 1621-1695, described this magical time of year in one of my favorite poems. It's called The Revival. Unfold, unfold, take in his light, Who makes thy cares more short than night. The joys which with his day star rise, He deals to all but drowsy eyes. And what the men of this world miss, Some drops and dews of future bliss. Hark how his winds have changed their note, And with warm whispers call thee out, the frosts are past, the storms are gone, and backward life at last comes on. The lofty groves in expressed joys reply unto the turtle's voice, and here in dust and dirt, oh here the lilies of his love appear. Life normally ends in death. But spring reminds us that the opposite is also true, that life follows death. Spring is a time when the frosts are past, the storms are gone, and backward life at last comes on. This backward life out of death in nature contradicts our normal expectations. And what's true in nature is even more true in God's grace. So much of what Jesus says in the Gospel of John is symbolic and metaphorical. But I read this week's Gospel in a simple and literal way. We read in John 12, 24, and 25, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The one who loves his life will lose it, while the person who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This saying of Jesus was so central to his mission and message that it occurs in all four Gospels and even two times in the Gospel of Luke. During Lent, Christians typically give up something as an outward expression of an inward transformation. To give up something is to relinquish it, to renounce it, to forfeit or lose it, or as Jesus says, to die to it. Jesus hints at the ultimate loss anyone might experience. To give up life as normally lived in the world in order to gain a newly enriched life, eternal life. And conversely, to grasp, to clutch, to try to control every variable of life. This is the way of death and loss. And so, to give up what we can never keep is to gain what we can never lose. I surveyed a few friends to learn what they've given up for Lent. (coughs) One gave up his addiction to evening sweets. Another gave up alcohol. A third friend recalled how as a child his mother was quite strict at Lent. None of the meals they ate during Lent included any animal products. I also read about a scholar whose spiritual director advised him to give up reading for Lent. A physicist friend spoke of his loss of identity when he took a job in industry. And another faculty friend, going through the tenure prospect process, spoke with candor about an idolatry in himself, about his position, a grasping after security that he wished to relinquish. It's easy to deepen these disciplines of loss, death, and renunciation. Some losses are voluntary, like giving up a lifelong dream, a bitter memory, a past failure, anger at parents or children, my expectation of others, plans for the future, or a broken friendship. Maybe I need to relinquish my obsessive attempts to control, which are really only thinly veiled forms of anxiety over time, money, and reputation. I wonder how Peter gave up what must have been unbearable regret at denying Jesus, especially after he boldly denied that he would ever deny him. How did he move on? Or how did Paul let go of the knowledge that he had helped to murder Christians and to persecute the church? Still other losses are involuntary, like the death of a loved one, sickness, injury, or getting fired from a job. A few years ago, I read a book by the Benedictine nun, Joan Chittister. It's called Scarred by Struggle, Transformed by Hope. She observes how experiences of loss bring great pain. Such pain can be intensely private and personal. Deep losses, she says, hurl one into an inner storm of strange forces. God's call, says Chittister, is that we move from isolation to independence. That we recognize that life is richer than any single loss. This struggle and pain of giving up something says Chittister is an unsparing lesson, but a necessary gift. she cultivates she counsels Christians to cultivate two virtues. The first virtue is detachment or indifference. This is the recognition that there's not only one way to live life in. C- Conversely, the affirmation that all of life in its many stages are gifts with possibilities for joy. In detachment, we let go of something. We give up the propensity to clutch and hoard. When we lose or relinquish something, we remain confident that God is a loving Father who knows what we need and who has other good and even better things to give us. To give up something is not a zero-sum game in which there is only further and further loss. Rather, it is to give up one thing, even good things, to gain something greater. I like what Chittister says. Detachment based on negation rather than an awareness of endless abundance is not a solution. Detachment frees me to grow in the second virtue, that of discernment. In discernment, God helps me to see and weigh different options, to exercise judgment. (coughs) (coughs) He helps me to understand and choose what is preferable, what's better, what will lead to growth and wholeness. Discernment isn't twenty twenty vision about every pain, loss, or problem. Rather, it's the confidence that God's spirit, <coughs> the paraclete who was called alongside to encourage and counsel me, will help me to see and act wisely as best as might be humanly possible. <coughs> The words of Jesus about dying as a path to life remind me of a favorite hymn written by Judson van der Venter in 1869. Here are the first and last stanzas from All to Jesus I Surrender. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him, in his presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to Thee. Fill me with Thy love and power. Let Thy blessing fall on me. The Apostle Paul models this for us, writing in Philippians 3 7 that he counts all things as lost in order to gain Christ. In giving up, letting go, And in dying to the ways of the world, says Jesus, we position ourselves to inherit eternal life in the kingdom of God today. Our book review this week is actually a combination book and music review by our music editor, Dave Werther. The book is called Satan is Real, The Ballad of the Leuven Brothers. It's written by Charlie Leuven with Benjamin Whitmer. Igniter Literary Group, 2012. And the CD that goes with it is called the Leuven Brothers, Satan is Real. Interestingly, it was originally released way back in 1959 a combination book-music review by David Werther. In his memoir, Satan is Real, Charlie Leuven credits his mother for teaching him and his older brother, Ira, to sing. Among the songs they learned from her was Mary of the Wild Moor. The ballad tells the story of a woman who leaves her family when she becomes pregnant, but later returns with her child seeking refuge. Father, dear father, she cried, come down and open the door, or the child in my arms will perish and die from the winds that blow across the wild moor. The father, deaf to her cry, lets his daughter die on his doorstep. Charlie Leuven reflects on that phrase, not deaf, but deaf to her cry. It wasn't that he couldn't hear her, he just wouldn't hear her. He laid up there in his big feather bed and let her freeze to death. Later, the Leuven brothers would write and record their own tale, Knoxville Girl, which ratcheted up the violence considerably and went on to become one of the most popular songs. In this case, a jealous man noticing girl's roving eyes beats her mercilessly and then throws her into the river. Charlie's father could have been a role model for such brutality, as he once beat Ira until his son lay unconscious. Arguably, paternal abuse and violence spurred Ira and Charlie on to musical greatness and destroyed one of the greatest singing duos of all time. Like one of their sisters who married at the age of 14, the Leuven brothers were eager to leave home and the arduous field work their father drove them to. Recognizing their musical ability, they pursued singing as the ticket away from the relentless toil of trying to scratch a living out of the dirt. Though Charlie and Ira worked hard for years to get a spot on the Grand old Opry and earn a steady living from their writing and performing, No one ever doubted their gifts. Their particular magic lay in their amazing ability to trade parts. He writes, It baffled a lot of people how we could change parts without nudging or winking at each other. He'd take the high lead and I'd do the low harmony under it, and he knew exactly when my part would get too high for me, just like I knew when his would get too low for him, and we could change in the middle of a word. Offstage, though, the brothers never changed parts. Ira was a perfectionist who could not stand criticism and sought solace in the bottle. It's not for nothing that the Leuven brothers' classic recording, Satan is Real, includes the Carter family's song, The Kneeling Drunkard's Prayer, nor that the song's lyrics can be found in Charlie's memoir. Charlie stayed sober, but Ira married four times and was nearly done in by his third wife, who shot him six times. Charlie and Betty's harmonious marriage ended after 61 years when Charlie died January 26, 2011. Charlie linked Ira's drinking to their father's beatings of Ira and apparent favoritism. Maybe Ira thought that Papa beat him so much because he knew he was just plain bad. Or maybe it was just that Ira understood how unfair it was that he was the main target of Papa's beatings. So he spent the rest of his life trying to spit in Papa's eye. He knew what Papa thought of alcohol. Ira's drinking and violence led to the demise of the Leuven brothers, and so perhaps the father who inadvertently launched their career sowed the seeds that ended it. Their reputation soured, and Charlie, tired of his brother's drunkenness, sought a solo career, going on to become a very successful artist in his own right. Thankfully, the duo lasted long enough to record their classic, Satan is Real, The record is famous for its fire and brimstone cover, as well as its songs. Credit for the cover goes to the brothers themselves. Charlie removed his son's Lionel train set from a sheet of plywood they used to make the 16-foot image of Satan. The brothers collected old tires and took them to a nearby rock quarry. When it came time for the shoot, they doused the tires with kerosene, and got more of a conflagration than they had bargained for, even the rocks began to explode. (laughs) Of the twelve songs on the recording, Satan is Real, six are Brothers compositions, including one called The Christian Life, a song Roger McGuinn and company featured on the Byrd's first country recording, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, and the title track. The song features a recitation in which Ira reminds the listeners that they can't pick and choose their bits of theology. If God is real, so is Satan. If God is real and every good gift is from him, then the beautiful blending of the brothers' voices testifies to that reality. Peter Kreef once argued for God's existence as follows. There is the music of Johann Sebastian Bach, therefore there must be a God. In our culture, in which there's a strong interest in Americana and traditional music, one could make a persuasive argument substituting there's the singing of the Leuven Brothers for the argument's premise about Bach. A memoir and a CD, both of which are called Satan is Real. For movies this week I review The Descendants from 2011. After his wife suffered a boating accident in Waikiki, the real estate attorney Matt King, played by George Clooney, faced the harsh reality that he had been an absentee husband and father, who was now left to care for two bratty teenage girls and his wife Elizabeth who was in a coma. To complicate matters, Matt was also the trustee of 25,000 acres of pristine and undeveloped land on Kauai, worth about $500 million. And you can bet that everyone had an opinion about whether and to whom to sell that land, which had otherwise been in the family for generations. Finally, Matt learns that his wife Elizabeth had cheated on him. This film garnered five Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, but this multi-layered plot didn't work for me. Only the consequences of his wife's affair received any meaningful development, and much of that seemed unreal to me. Nor did the teenage humor work with the otherwise tragic storyline, never mind that most of it was scatological and not even funny finally, a surprise ending about the disposition of the land raised a new issue that was also undeveloped and which had no basis in anything that preceded it. But the film stars George Clooney, so there you go. The Descendants from 2011 And finally this week, for Lenten, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) for Lenten poetry, we go back to the fourth century in St. Ephraim of Syria. It's simply called Lenten Prayers. O Lord and Master of my life, take from me the spirit of sloth, despair, lust of power, in idle talk, but grant rather the spirit of chastity, humility, patience, and love to thy servant. Yea, O Lord and King, (coughs) grant me to see my own transgressions (coughs) and not to judge my brother. For blessed art thou unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March 25th. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.